Welcome to the podcast, A Living Library of Resiliency, where we have creative conversations. This is episode 21. I am a visual artist, an experienced social worker, and crisis counselor, a mother, a psychology student, a podcaster, a writer, and an event planner. I'm a community-minded volunteer, and I also organize creative wellness retreats using art therapy principles and environmental psychology. I sell my visual art and artist merchandise on my website, bewhimsyartloft.ca. My Facebook group is Art by Rhiannon Berry, and my Instagram is Rhiannon Berry Art. I also have a red bubble store called Be Whimsy Art Loft. I do quite a few art retreats and creative wellness opportunities around Niagara and throughout Ontario. You can stay up to date by joining my e-newsletter and you can join that by going to my website. I have some upcoming retreats in Niagara Falls um, during October and February. Those will be overnight retreats. And you can also book me for a group activity. Um, I do most prominently um, gentle painting, art journaling for complex emotions, and also some crafting uh, bohemian wall hangers or lavender sachets. I have a variety of online wellness activities too. You do need to register for those opportunities. Uh, They include a variety of live sessions and creative art studio immersion videos, um, either live on Facebook and Instagram, or you can catch them on my YouTube channel. I also do something called the Pen Pals Project. It's a creative exchange and artist talk, and you can join for a $5 donation, and we match you with uh, another creative and you create back and forth in two weeks and then we all join together to discuss what you've created and learn more about you and it ends in a online exhibit as well a novel idea and a creative spark is a social arts group uh, where we are working towards publishing so in this case one piece of art inspires all the writers in the group And then we do a preview of their first drafts uh, in a group over Zoom. And uh, the next time, the next round, we take a short story and all the artists get creative and they create something. So you have four weeks to create your pieces. And like I said, at the end, we are looking to publish it as an interesting manuscript um, showcasing collaboration between Canadian writers and artists. Today's guest is Ariel DeVoe. What not giving up looks like. She is mindful. She moves her legs, arms, neck, and torso in a graceful self-care indulgence on a hoop hanging from a tree in her backyard. Ariel values this form of physical expression and relaxation and her other self-care strategies too. They are protectors against professional and educational burnout. From abandonment and abuse to employment as a sex worker for an escort agency, listen as Ariel shares some of her most significant life experiences. We don't always understand how our experiences will mold us into the individuals we are meant to be while they are happening, 
but she carries hers with her as she pursued her BA and now an MA in psychology counseling. Now she is an accomplished, kind professional, empathetic, frontline community support worker, working with some of our most vulnerable citizens, victims of sex trafficking, those experiencing homelessness, and those recovering from addictions. So I actually saw um, one of your day retreats on Instagram that came up in my feed and I was like, oh, I need to do this. But it was on the days I was working, so I was like looking more into you and then that's how I oh, saw very your podcast, cool. yeah. Yeah, the one that's coming up is on a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> I had the venue booked and it was for a small private group and we postponed it due to a COVID related issue. And so I thought, you know what? Well, let's just do like a like low cost accessible day. And I realized it's on a Wednesday, but <laughs> having yeah. trouble filling it. Um, but we're hoping for the best and we'll go ahead with six people. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's still available. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'll do one final push. And so we're going to start from the top. Just tell me a little bit about who you are. Okay. Well, my name is Ariel. Um, I'm 31. I have a background in psychology. So I did my bachelor's in psych and I'm doing my master's in counseling right now. I've worked in the social work field for many, many years. Um, and something personal about me is I've struggled with uh, mental illness for quite some time now. Um, I was diagnosed with panic disorder at 17, so it's been a long struggle. So panic um, disorder attacks? Yes, uh, yeah. frequent panic attacks. Uh, I also have anxiety mm-hmm. and depression, so it's wow. kind of all comorbid. Um, I noticed from some of the questions I had you fill out before you came on the show that you did mention burnout quite a bit, and it's pretty prevalent in social work. I know I was a social worker as well. I worked with uh, refugees, um, Canadian newcomers, people who were homeless, uh, but you move around quite a lot in that as well, and that in itself is taxing, right? Because you know, you're working with this group and then you're looking for the next job, the next opening, the next placement, the next volunteer opportunity. So I noticed you did quite a few different things just like I did. Like I was moving all over the place. And I mean, they all, they all add something to your package that you end up figuring out when you land in that sweet spot and you're like, oh, that's why I learned that, right? But do you want to talk a little bit about um like you were before you were you were working for a I'm assuming a women's shelter and you were uh, working with people who had been victims of human trafficking correct okay so was that in the Niagara region you don't have to name the place but yeah it was in the Niagara region um it was actually a branch of one of the shelters so we dealt specifically with trafficked victims Um, and the most shocking thing I think I learned through that is the age of the women Um, and there's no set you know type of woman who gets trafficked they were victims from 
you know, all different cultures, different bodies, different everything. So it's, it was shocking. Yeah. And to hear some of their stories and it's definitely why I became passionate about it. And again, experiencing burnout in that, in that kind of environment was hard because you, as a woman, you relate to them and you almost see yourself in them sometimes. Yeah. So you're dealing with a lot of secondary trauma. You're listening to them. You're running groups. You're trying to facilitate changes, positive changes for them and changes in their life and uh, healing process. Uh, You're trying to follow all the rules and guidelines and the policies and be respectful to the organizations and their mandates and, um, you know, their their whole mission and value statements, right? You have to stay within those boxes. Um, but I was, uh, like, when I, I volunteered as a crisis counselor for the Niagara Sexual Assault Center, phone okay. crisis counselor. And during that time, I would, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I'd take on shifts, and then I'd have to take, like, three-month breaks. <laughs> Sounds about right. Right? Um <laughs> But I was shocked as well with everything that came out around. I learned so much about trauma and childhood sexual assault and how, you know, it really does affect your whole life. But these women that were calling in were in their 50s for the most part, you know, because they were finally realizing that that's what happened to them. But as far as, like, human trafficking in the region, I am not an expert. But from what I gather, there's some pretty young grooming going on. Very young. And it's across Canada, and there's a lot of it, and it's right in front of our faces. It is so prevalent in the Niagara region, and it's crazy because I never realized that until I started working in the field. Um, it's it's crazy how it happens and how it's it's just it's everywhere. They. It's even in the shelter system. So they're they're going after women that are already vulnerable. They're grooming women who are in that environment already, um, which makes them easy targets. So it's unfortunate. Yeah. So as a worker, if, if one of your clients is telling you, oh, this man, he wants me to be his, you know, everything, and they're laying it on, you know, like they do, I think they call it the Romeo... Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do as a as a frontline worker? Like, how do you intervene, or what programs are in place to help you stop something like this that you can see happening? So, it's difficult when you're when you're working because, like you said, there are policies that you have to kind of follow, and a lot of that is like confidentiality. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing you want to do is you know run to the police and be like, you need to go arrest this man. He's you know trying to groom the women here and you can't exactly do that so you really have to try and have a conversation with the person and and help them understand what's happening without you know maybe explicitly saying it so you're counseling you are yeah definitely yeah it's difficult it's a very difficult sorry it's a difficult like pocket of the work there's a lot of difficult pockets of the work, but that I think that's got to be especially hard with, um, for me, with the sexual assault and 
human trafficking. Um, I did have a call one time from a very young girl and it like broke me. And again, that's where the burnout comes from. Yeah. It's hard to let those stories go. Yeah, I still think about it today. I get a little teary-eyed every time I think about the phone call. And uh, yeah, the, 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 re the piece that really got me was um, she wanted to sing to me. <laughs> so, but there was a lot more to it, but obviously I can't get too into it. But I, I was just like, I think after that one, I had to take a break. I was like, Oof. yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not, I started thinking, and this is part of the burnout too. I started thinking maybe I'm not the right person for this. Maybe I don't belong in social work, you know, and all these uh, self doubts start creeping in because I was uh, burning out, you know. And I think part of that burnout as a social worker too is when you start feeling that you almost feel like you can't help other people because you know you're struggling yourself but I think that that's kind of when you really need to take a step back from the job because if you're not really helping yourself you're not going to be in the best spot to help other people yeah. so you see a lot of people in the industry taking like a stress leave yeah yeah um, you also talked about your coping mechanisms, um, and I want to ask you a little bit about that. Like, so obviously there's like problem solving, right? You can go to your supervisor, you can adjust your schedule, you can um, take your vacation days, take your lunch hour. There's like little problem solving things that you can do. You can start a committee on to fill a gap that you see. Um, but what about like the emotional coping mechanism what what do you do for yourself to keep yourself well and healthy so I will be completely honest I've had very maladaptive coping <laughs> mechanisms over the years um but I noticed that those coping mechanisms were not actually helping me in the long run it was causing more emotional you know damage and burnout so I started doing other things like journaling mm -hmm. um I started, sometimes if something was going on in my life and I didn't have anyone to tell it to, I would I would write a story about it. So I would yeah. just get it down on paper. Um, this is kind of weird, but coloring helps me a lot. Yeah, that's you know, your just, creative piece. Yeah, you get yeah. out of your head. Um, and reading a good book is always something, just anything to escape, you know, what's happening inside you for a moment. So you were <clears throat> putting a Band-Aid on a lot of things. That sounds very familiar to me. I'm not sure. Like, I often think, like, I know you're taking psychology right now, so am I. So my brain goes a million miles a minute sometimes. I think it goes further than it needs to sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I start thinking, like, does this have something to do with age as well? Because, it, like, it could just be, like, part of the awakening to becoming a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and by that, I mean, like, a mature woman, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, there are a lot of really bad coping mechanisms. I did as well. And I look back on it now and I go, oh, that was really not healthy. <laughs> like, I used to box twice a week. Oh, wow. Like, but, like, punching only made me angrier. So, you know, and then I, I did spin class followed by yoga class, like, right next to each other. Like, it wasn't helpful. I, was, I just got into, like, whole, like, body and gym mode mm -hmm. in my mind I wasn't really taking care of anything so it's interesting you say that because I 
I do work out and I've noticed that there are times where I'll work out for the wrong reasons. You know, you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, oh my God, I need to go to the gym and I need to start working on this. And, and that doesn't necessarily help your emotional health. Mm-hmm. If anything, it impacts it. So I find that the times I'm like, you know what, I want to feel good today and I'm going to go release some energy at the gym. Those are the Positive times mindset we, going in. Exactly. That's yeah. when you benefit from the most. Uh, yeah, and like a good hike is always great too. Absolutely. Yeah, working out does release a lot of those really good feel-good hormones, uh, but it really does depend on where you are in your work at the time. It really does. Looking back on it now, I was like, Ooh, "What was I doing?" <laughs> like in my work schedule, I would have like weights, back, arms. You know, like yeah. <laughs> just like some sort of control over this crazy job that you know. And then the other area, too, that you worked in was housing and homelessness. Are you still working in that area? I am, yes. Um, so I worked in a few different areas of it. Um, I did outreach for a while, so I was actually working on the street um, and connecting with them one-on-one. And now my role is um, an intensive case manager, so I work with a specific set of people in a long-term housing. So it's uh, we have 25 individuals who've experienced chronic homelessness, Okay. Um, who also have mental health and addictions. Mm. Yeah. So I also worked for an agency, but um, in the fundraising area. Okay. Um, and in doing that, I realized that I liked frontline work and being with people a lot better than being in the admin. Um, like, you get into social work for different reasons, right? Everybody has their reason, but I think for me that helped clarify the reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that really came to light for me was actually Niagara's homelessness count. While I was working in that, in that field, I didn't know that this was something that was happening, and I was taken aback by it when I had to write like little blogs and things and include this information and I remember one day just writing about it and writing about the children and like just going home and crying yeah absolutely so I have (laughs) I have the report here from uh the last one was taken in 2021 March 2021 and in Niagara the results showed 665 residents without a home and 121 of them were kids yeah that's so shocking to me it absolutely is yeah and um it goes on the report goes on to say one in four so 22.6 percent of responders identified as indigenous or having indigenous ancestry so it's a chronic issue that runs through so many different aspects of social services and what's needed in Niagara. And then, um, so just explain a little bit about what this count is. Do you want to explain how they, how they conduct it and how they find these numbers? Yeah, so there's actually something called HIFAS, and it's basically a system that allows the region to track homelessness. So if they individuals go to shelters and stuff, their information will get put in HIFAS. Um, it'll have information like where they're from, how long they've been homeless. Um, it tracks 
where they stay, what shelters they stay at, which helped for an outreach worker because if there was individuals who needed to connect with, we would utilize that and we'd be able to see, you know, where they slept the night before. Um, that being said, there are so many, like that number that you're seeing on paper, those are the individuals that are being tracked essentially. Yeah, so those but there's are so much more. They're not the hidden homeless necessarily. Exactly. So this point in time count, um, it's a it's it's a variety of individuals who go out and they look for people under bridges and they look for act, like they do an actual head count one night of the year. So they look for those people. And that's that's incredible to me that you have a group of people going around counting people because it's so hidden. It is, yeah. And like I said, you know, there are people that that don't necessarily utilize services like shelters and that. So there is a large number of those individuals that they're not accounting for. Um, and a lot of those too would be youth. And uh, what I've seen is that those individuals tend to, you know, they'll be the ones that are couch surfing and stuff. So they don't appear homeless per se, but they are. And again, those are the ones that are being missed in that count. This, I don't know if they've redone this count, but now they're including, so they broke it down. So this might, okay, so this is, I'll read it out to you. So this is 2021. They may have changed it since the last time you saw it, but it says 219 in emergency or domestic violence shelters and safe beds, 128 trend in transitional housing. So that's that tracking system. Um, 47 unsheltered at a location that's a public space or in a vehicle. Uh, 35 with family or friends, so couch surfing, they call that. Yeah, the youth probably aren't counted in that. And then 10 is motel or temporary situation. So, and it's only who answers, just like human trafficking, right? It's only who reports. But the numbers are still too much. Like That's a lot of children to be homeless and in shelters and, you know, potentially even on the street. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's a large, large number. So take me through like a typical day of work. So right now, um, there is a building that the individuals I work with are housed in. So it is more long-term housing. And it's essentially just helping them where they're at. So when they moved in, they all signed a lease. And in that lease, they agreed to participate in programming. So at our location, we have a life skills worker. We have an addiction worker. Um, and we'll help them create goals. So it could be, you know, something as small as learning how to cook for themselves or being able to... Um, get their license or get their GED. We actually have one youth right now who is uh, working on getting her GED. And my job is to support them along that journey, help them reach their goals. And a lot of it is counseling as well, but um, supporting in other ways. So do you advocate, do you like go to court with them, things like that too? We do, yes. Um, if if they need someone to advocate for them, then that's certainly part of our job. Um, we've also had to help a lot of individuals uh, with things like getting their taxes done. You know, the, 
they're homeless. Stuff that you're not so, taking yeah, care of. Yeah, yeah, there's things that they haven't really done. So just getting them, you know, all caught up. So um, here you're letting me know earlier on with the questions that I had sent you that you're working with chronic homelessness. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between homelessness and chronic homelessness as it pertains to the terminology used by the industry? So we see chronic homelessness as anyone who has been homeless for more than five years. Um, a lot of individuals may experience homelessness for a period in time. Um, they may end up you know, housed in a motel or something like that where unfortunately we don't necessarily consider that homeless anymore. Um, mm. So it's we're working with the people that have been living rough, which is what we call it, on the streets for five plus years. Okay, and you're an outreach worker, or you were an outreach worker? I was an outreach worker, yeah. So can you describe what you do as an outreach worker? So as an outreach worker, you're, you're essentially, you're on the streets. You are connecting with those individuals. Uh, so like I said, you, you utilize HIFAS to see where they're staying. Um, a lot of the people that we would interact with on the street, they wouldn't have any forms of ID, so you'd help them get their health cards, their birth certificates, um, a lot of the times um, they would need income of some sort. We had lots of people who had injuries and um, couldn't work, so we'd help get them set up on like ODSP. Um, again, courts, court issues, we would advocate for them in court. So just like the backlog of, you know, their to-do lists. Yeah. Yeah. With all the heavy stuff on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's quite a lot for anyone. So um, tell me what inspired you to get into this type <laughs> of work. Um you know what? I think it's it's always been in the cards for me. Um for as long as I can remember, psychology is something that has just interested me. Uh I read you know, biographies of the greats for fun. Um, one of my favorite textbooks I ever read when I was in high school was uh, Cognition. Mm, so <laughs> I've always been interested in it, and I think just experiencing the mental health struggles that I have and, and really not knowing what to do with that, I, I wanted to be the person that someone could go to. Mm-hmm. Um, like and the person that maybe you didn't have? Exactly. Yeah. And it led me to, you know, all the jobs that I've had throughout the years, and it's been great because in each one I've been able to encounter a different population and and different struggles, and it's, I think, put me in a better place to help in the future. Yeah. You gain things as you go. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking with a few people on the podcast over the last... I think like at least the last like three or four and we were all talking about life path and I think that's something that we're all thinking about now coming out of the isolation and the COVID and everything like that like I know I am it really made everybody kind of reanalyze you know what's not like what's my purpose but like what the heck am I doing right what am I doing with my life and and my decisions that I've made that have led me to this point and you know, you either have to accept it and be like, okay, this is for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Or some people kind of like dwell on their mistakes, right? 
Um, but I think, especially in social work and in counseling, um, anything that you've endured and have been resilient from, you can pull that into your work as long as you're healed or in the process of healing. <laughs> uh, but I think it's all really, really great stuff if you can if you can do that. And I've always thought too, like, um, I come from uh, a f- like a, a large family, and we suffered through like poverty and different different things like that. But I like I grew up to be a person who was like, geez, fax workers should really have, you know, a better personal understanding of what it's like to be a child like this, not just schooling. Um, and I think that's really important in a lot of areas too. Like, I don't think you have to have suffered immense, like tremendously, like you don't have to have been trafficked to be a, but I think a little bit of, you know, hardships, um, and, and navigating how to become resilient is needed in this profession. It absolutely is. And I think that that's kind of where I struggled growing up is I didn't feel like I I had anyone who related to my experiences and I mean it's it's wonderful to be able to talk to someone and share what you've gone through but there's something powerful about someone being able to relate to yeah, your story. to empathize yeah yeah um do you want to talk a little bit about your story I know you shared it with me here but in your own words Yes, uh, so I was a sex worker for a period of my life. Um, I worked for an agency and then became independent, so I worked on my own. Um, I thankfully was, I never had the experience of, you know, being trafficked or anything like that. There were certainly some interesting experiences I had to go through, but, um, that happened prior to me working for the women's shelter. So going through that experience allowed me to connect with the women who I encountered that were trafficked. When you were working. Deeper level, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and even though I didn't have the same experience as them, being able to relate to them on things like, you know, how we viewed our bodies after we we went through things like that. And... um. It's interesting because there are people in sex work who love their job, yeah, and love their bodies, and it's it's amazing. And yeah. you know what? It's it's the oldest profession around, so mm-hmm. it's definitely something. But then there are women who who go into it willingly or not, and out of desperation sometimes. Exactly, and it it does it can affect who how you see yourself um, very negatively and. I had that view of myself after I left sex work, so I was able to connect with a lot of those trafficked women on a deeper level because I had some of the same feelings that they had. Yeah, I can totally see that, how that would work. Um, Now, I was just like, I'm thinking about how taking psychology after that experience because I know for myself, uh, <laughs> studying childhood trauma, I'm just like, holy <laughs> moly, I didn't, I missed all this stuff, right? Like, you innately know things, mm-hmm. and you're like, I knew it. Yeah. I knew there was something there. 
Um, did you have any like realizations about maybe how like your childhood or the people around you who were supposed to be caring for you um, led you to that profession? Looking back now, yes, I can definitely evaluate all of my childhood experiences and and pretty much understand exactly why I ended up where I did. Um, I uh, I did suffer some childhood um, abuse at the hands of my stepmother. Um, I also had, you know, a single father growing up um, through the crucial years, the years where, you know, you really needed a motherly figure. Um, so that was definitely difficult. Um, so your stepmother, where was your mom? Uh, so my mom was not around um, at all after I was born. Um, she she left, so it was just my dad and I. And he got married when I was two um, to my stepmom. Uh, she was physically and emotionally abusive to me. So when I was seven, I told my dad about some of the things that had been happening so they they divorced and then it's it's really just been you guys since yeah so did you know that she was your stepmom I did not <laughs> um it's even worse it is and I mean I was so young when they when they got married and I didn't know and I think that that's why I I waited to tell my dad about a lot of the stuff that was happening because I didn't I didn't want to get her in trouble, right? Yeah, it's classic victim behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So here you are, little kid. You're being raised by your dad. <laughs> <laughs> you and dad. And um, so where does everything start sort of sh- becoming shaky for you and you start thinking, you know what, I, I think that this is the route for me? To be honest, it was probably right after that. I mean... I was so young when she left that it everything kind of started then. Um, I suffered with uh, self-esteem issues in high school. Um, I was bullied. Uh, I started experimenting with drugs to, you know, kind of put that Band-Aid fix on it. I, you know, suffered additional trauma. I... I uh, graduated high school, thank goodness, it was very close there for a while, um, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't want to go back to school because it was so hard, and I just didn't want to repeat high school. So I took some time off, and I kind of, I think I just kind of lost myself a bit. Um, And then through the experiences I had during that time, I realized that I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. And I just decided one day to go for it, and I went back to take psych at 25, and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Yeah, so you went back at 25. I did. Um, I went back for social work, I think at like 29, and now I'm 39, and I've been tr- like doing a trickle of you know, classes since 2016, but I went full-time just before COVID. So then I was learning all this stuff in isolation. (laughs) So I wanted to talk a little bit about that too, because 
um, like the difference between burning out on a job and burning out as a student. And one of the things I have to say about my experience as a student is I don't think I've ever been, I think this has been one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life is learning psychology during a pandemic and a lockdown. Um, and I'm a single parent, so it was just me and my teenage son oh, wow. getting through it. But I have to say, like, the resources that my school has that they think that they have, it it's it the it's not enough. It's not enough to help students. And I was even thinking, like, I used to listen to the Calm app. There was like 225 sessions, you know. Like, I would listen to the Calm app while I was studying, while I was sleeping, while I was doing the dishes. Like, it got me through so much. Talking to friends and family as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I was like looking on there. I'm like, exam. There's no meditation for exams. Like, this is like, <laughs> you know. So I'm like, I gotta create an app here. But even like reaching out to the schools, like mental health uh, people or the um, anxiety over exam people, things like that. I just didn't find that the help with student burnout was readily available to me. I have the same experience as you did. I graduated on my undergrad just as COVID hit, so I missed out on my graduation. <laughs> but uh, it all you, that hard work. You do experience serious burnout, especially in you know, a field where you're learning so much about yourself too, right? And especially if you've had some some traumas and stuff as you're learning about, you know, what it looks like and where it comes from, you're kind of learning about yourself Like writing too. people's names <laughs> in the margins. Yes. Yeah. Situations. Like, so that's why that happened. Um, yeah. And I, I definitely didn't have any resources I found. Um, they have counselors and that that you can talk to, but... I, I didn't find that it really helped me. So I got pretty burnt out come fourth year and, and my panic attacks started getting worse. And, you know, I, I tried everything. I even tried hypnosis at one point yeah. to just try and how do I be that calm student? Yeah, you're going to try Reiki next. <laughs> Literally, yeah. I tried everything. Sound healing, you <laughs> name it, I tried it. Yeah, because there really is no answer. And I honestly think that they that it's too much of a workload that they assume that, like, this is full-time. It's like, okay, yeah, but what are the students telling you mm-hmm. is happening to them? Everybody is on a – never mind the fact that we were in – we were taking psychology courses <laughs> and sociology and stuff like that and philosophy. Um, but think just think about how much talk there is about mental health and wellness. And the jargon and the return emails and the send me a link to this is all the same. Mm-hmm. So there might be some slight changes here and there. But the fact of the matter is how students are feeling and reacting, It, do, it it's the, this current setup is not conducive to good mental health and success. Absolutely not. So... You just have to like, get through it. And every time you get through it, though, you're like, oh, I got through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think for sure if there were there were some resources in place, it, it would have made the journey, you know, a lot easier. And I probably would have learned a lot more, too. Um, yeah. And if you weren't if, if you don't have such a heavy course load, yeah. too, if it's staggered, because like. 
Yeah, you. It's, a lot uh, it's to like take okay, in. I, get, I can get like an eighty-two in this, <laughs> and then I'll get like a seventy-three, and I'll, I'll be fine and I'll still. Bump, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot. Exam season's not fun. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, so student burnout is very different from work burnout. Very, very different. There's so much pressure, right? Because your future is like hanging on this thing that you have to pass. Yeah, it's the story of my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> my master's, it's, it's a lot of stress for sure. Yeah, I'm like, I'm considering going on to get my master's and I'm afraid because of this reason. <laughs> because of the stress and the burnout that's involved and the lack of supports. But also... I think it might. I think I might be okay because, I'm. If I do, it's going to be for art therapy. So maybe it'll be fun too. Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, I I really enjoy psychology. Like I said, so it it's fun. But there's always that pressure of of failing too, right? So it's like I love it, but I'm just always scared that I'm just not going to be good enough. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. You go in, you're like, I'm determined, I'm going to do this. You've got this high like sense of achievement and self-worth and you believe in yourself and it slowly just gets like, <laughs> whittled and whittled away until you pass something. Until and you're you like, okay, me. awesome again. <laughs> yeah, there have been times where I'm like, oh, I did so bad on this and then I'd be scared to look at the grade and it'd come and it'd be like a 92 and I'd be like, why was I worried? Yeah. yeah. Then I tell myself, don't let it happen again. Just, you got this. And then same thing would happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. A professor told me, uh, I, she's like, I was like, oh, well, I sent this in and I don't feel really good about it. She's like, don't worry, let's just see. And then like two weeks later, or not even two, she, she marked it right away for me because she could tell I was like, yeah, and she I said, just, and she goes, here's your mark. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, I'm really disappointed in myself. She's like, what are you talking about? This is a good mark. <laughs> I'm like, but still, maybe I didn't try hard enough. Because you get in this horrible mindset yeah. of, uh, it's just, it's a roller coaster of emotions. Absolutely. And never mind the content. Yeah. <laughs> You're reading studies on, like, <laughs> interesting things. <laughs> um, but, yeah. All right. So what are some of your good coping habits? <laughs> we talked about some that didn't really, that, that were because of Band-Aid, but yeah. what are some of the ones that you're sort of working on now, developing, or ones that are working that are positive? So I focus on self-care now, which is something that I just completely did not even think about. Um, so I, I take time to myself. I detach from social media, from checking the school emails, you know, from worrying about the assignment. You just have to take a moment to yourself. Um, and I treat myself kindly too. So I tell myself positive affirmations because I'm so used to being negative the most negative person in my life. Yeah. Um, you can get into that. Like, I'm so stupid. What am I doing? Yeah. It's almost like it happens automatically too which is why did sad. I think I could do this why did I think I could yeah. pass I know I get I do too and yeah it, it actually it, it takes me actively noticing it to to change it to be like you know what no that's that's not right I I did my best and that's that's what matters yeah you have to keep like sticky notes on the bathroom door yeah, and the fridge I do and stuff that. do you <laughs> do. isn't that horrible that you have to go to that extent though 
I wonder sometimes if there's people who are just like totally running on neutral while they're going through school. If they are, they need to come share their secrets. <laughs> Please let me know if you're listening and you find school to be on like an even ride. Come tell me what's your secret. Yeah, because I, I do that too. Um, and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I got this. And I'm like really excited to write a paper and it doesn't affect me at all. I have not had that yet. Oh. <laughs> I, I A lot of it too is my, my anxiety so I'm mm-hmm. I'm constantly overthinking everything which does not make it easier no so even when I I think I feel confident about something that anxiety definitely comes in and tells me otherwise yeah yeah anxiety would definitely play a huge role in exam time mm-hmm. I think for me where I sort of faltering a little bit in my grades was when I took um, statistics oh god um <laughs> I I lost so much confidence in myself taking that course, and there was no support. I was reaching out, being like, I'm having trouble. Do you, can you like Zoom with me and explain this concept? But I had worked myself up so much that it didn't matter what somebody said to me over Zoom. I was still going to have to like go away for like three days, decompress, don't think at all about anything to do, try not to dream about it. <laughs> And then, like, come back and, like, start from the beginning again. I did, I had to start from the beginning of chapters again so often in that course. And finally, I had people, like, like, oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, sucker. But then finally, as I was, like, wearing down more and more and more, finally people, like, close family members, like, yeah, I was crying in the back of the classroom. (laughs) Like, finally, I'm like, it's like when you have a kid. Like, do you have a child? I do not. Okay, it's, I like... (laughs) Taking, if it's anything like stats, I'm like not gonna a have a child. <laughs> um, well, it, it's very much like it in this way. Nobody freaking tells you <laughs> how bad it hurts and what happens afterwards, and about the sleep deprivation. Nobody explains that quite well enough. Um, and it's the same with stats. Like people are like that. You get warned about it. Like it's a hard one, but nobody actually like sits down and like says. Listen, you're gonna need to do these things. You're gonna need a survival kit. Like And I really feel like that should be in the app that I develop. <laughs> you know what? Stats was it was a struggle for me too. I I don't think I passed with more than a seventy two in that class, but it I encountered uh, a form of stats again in my research oh, class no. in, my, in my master's. Oh yeah, yeah. The research. Yes. Yeah, research is yeah, uh, I I got that one out of the way with stats. So I did them together. Bad. That might have been one of the, that, one of the bad yeah. choices. Yeah, definitely. But, <laughs> yeah. but I was just like, I gotta get this done. Get it out of the way. Yeah, I had to for reporting. You had to come up. You had to like break everything down a million times. Yeah. With math, yuck. And I'm yeah, I'm not a math person. That that class was hard. I I did not think I was gonna make it, but I did, and that's <laughs> kind of what we're talking about. We keep like. Negatively, yeah. you know, talking to ourselves and telling ourselves what we can and can't do. I'm never going to finish this class. Yeah. yeah. This is going to be the end of me. We could have <laughs> so many tears, shirt. you oh, know. God, if you only knew. Yeah, if you only knew. But I remember getting to that point where it's like, just walk away. And you have no other recourse other than to start the freaking chapter again. Yeah. Just start it. Don't try to muddle through start it again and and throw out your old notes and start with new ones like I literally had to like 
That was brutal. Yes. That was brutal. <laughs> it was absolutely but, brutal. What about uh, philosophy for you? Did you have to take that? So that was one of my electives in undergrad. And actually, shout out to my philosophy professor, professor at Brock. She was amazing. And I did better in philosophy than I did in psych. Um, I loved it. Did you? You know how some people are just good at stats? Apparently, I'm just good at philosophy. I I like the history aspect of it, um, but I had a really hard time recalling dates and putting people together. So I ended up with this, like, timeline that stretched across my dining room and my <laughs> living room so that I could literally, because I'm a visual person, so I literally had to draw a time. I'm like, I sent pictures to my sisters, and they're like, my uncle's like, I don't understand. I had my whiteboard. He's like, I don't, I don't get it. But I literally, because it was such a long, such a huge part of human history yeah. that there were so many people involved and ideas and theories and methods. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, boy, oh, boy, <laughs> this is going to be a toughie. For me, it's one of my lowest marks. Oh, wow. Yeah. See, it's funny how that works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I did it... Um, an accelerated one. So it was over the summer. I believe it was only like two months. So it was like the full like philosophy um, intro class oh, that okay. I did in the two months. So it was... So you really liked it. I did. I yeah. loved it. And I mean, I, I found the same thing with you where there was a lot of information, but um, a lot of stuff I'd, I'd read too. Right? You had previously read. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, that maybe... For me, I hadn't really. I just heard names. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I submitted like my my professor marked my exam and then sent me a message and yeah. I sent him back a YouTube link to the Monty Python with everybody playing soccer because <laughs> I was just like I'm so done with this <laughs> that's what I sent him I was just like <laughs> I need to be done with this and I need to have it on a happy note exiting this <laughs> situation yeah. I finally, I finally did it, but like it was just like, oh my god, yeah. Some of them are harder than others, and then some of them are really interesting. Mm -hmm. So, what sort of area you're going into counseling? But what sort of like expertise are you looking at? So, I mean, I have so much experience in mental health and addictions now. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I, I would like to specialize in. Some form of trauma-based counseling. Um, it would be nice to also work in a hospital setting. Uh, I did a placement actually, and uh, it was at the PICU, and I encountered so many interesting individuals. Mm. And it would be nice to do that. But there's so many things I want to do. You know, I want to have my own practice, and then I think about like, could I really leave what I'm doing now? Like, I feel like. I might still in some way do some form of outreach stuff. The world is changing, though, so you could have your own practice, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be brick and mortar, and it doesn't have to look like these antiquated offices. Which mine certainly would not. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, for for me, like, like, I still have a lot to get through. But for me, like, I see myself having some sort of private practice. Um... But like more of a wellness center mm-hmm. with like retreats that are accessible. 
So one of the things that I understood early on was that in social work, it's all grants, it's all fundraising. You can you can have programs, but they have to be funded and remitted on. Mm-hmm. Where if you have a practice, people's benefits could pay for some of this stuff that when they come to see you. Correct. So yeah. that's when I started thinking of like, okay, what do I need to get to that place where I have those both of those? But then, you know, building a business isn't easy either. It takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, and I have a business mentor right now, and um, he's like, just go back to your drawing board, <laughs> and we'll meet over Zoom, and you can share, share that with me, and we'll talk some more. But, yeah, it, it takes so much time and effort, but so does writing grants. And mm-hmm. um, being in social work, like you can still have your private practice and then have a part-time or a casual job in social work because there's all sorts of it depends on who's in the government, but there's all sorts of like little funding pockets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that you kind of touched on there was having a private practice um, does allow us to make things a little bit more accessible. I remember in my last year of university, I after I had tried everything, you know, sound healing, the, the reiki, and nothing was working. The <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I reached out to my neuropsych professor, and I was like, I can't even get out of bed and get here to class like I'm struggling so much and she she actually agreed to see me and I could not afford her rate at all so she had her own private practice and she put me on a sliding scale so basically I paid what I was able to afford and I don't know that I would have been able to get through the last year of university without talking to her so that's something that I I intend to do in my professional private practices make it accessible for people who need it mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of it right now for me it's like the programs in social work I think that's awesome that she did that by the way and um, for you to say that that's like a big reason why you made it to the end is huge mm-hmm. um, I so, still see her today too and so, oh, so she's in the right place She's definitely she in the right place, yeah. Um, oh, what I was trying to say is, I'm trying to work out a thought here, but um, so in social work, usually you have to become a client. You have to declare something about yourself, whether it's I have this mental health issue, I'm homeless, I've suffered this, I'm part of this minority. You have to claim all these things in order to uh, receive the help, which is understandable because people want to track things. They want to help you the best they can. They want to do a complete intake. and um, But some people don't want to declare things for a variety of reasons. But they still need an accessible place to enter. Mm-hmm. So my mind always goes to my first time around, I took journalism. and But my sister took social work. And she did her placement we were in school around the same time. So she did her placement at this place uh, in Sudbury. And it was a needle exchange clinic, uh, but it also had a nurse, a youth group, um, uh, all these different things inside the same building. So you could walk in and nobody would know what the heck you were there for. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such a cool concept. So to apply something like that to a retreat business, because right now what I'm seeing is a lot of social arts groups, 
like a retreat business that focuses on nature and uh, the things that I'm interested in, environmental psychology mm-hmm. and, and art therapy. But to focus on something like that, if you look in the community, um, it's either really, really expensive or you have to be part of one of these. So for social arts groups, for artist studio immersion, uh, for mindfulness art-based programming, for any of these key areas, um, it's either super expensive or like free or really, really low cost to join because of the grants. Right. So, but there's an area in between there, you know, where you don't want to um, declare whatever it is that's troubling you, um, but you also don't want to pay an arm and a leg. So I think that might be a little, like a little sweet spot right now when I look out there and do my analysis of what everybody's doing in the in the region. Um, but you know, Niagara isn't that unique. When I look at like housing, when I look at minimum wage, when I look at these um, these numbers in human trafficking and things like that, and even just like the amount of wellness workers and what people are doing, what industries are booming, it seems to be pretty much standard everywhere right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I just think like there's a lot of work to do uh, if you want to have a unique business right now because the wellness industry is completely saturated. It you is. have to find gaps and holes. And even for private practice, you have to find these like, like you're saying, I'm going to focus on trauma. I see so many trauma centers, like trauma-based private practices. Mm-hmm. So it's tough out there. It is. And I think to coming from the practitioner's standpoint, you also might not want to put yourself in that box and state, you know. Yeah, like I do behavioral uh, psychology or, yeah. So it's tough. Yeah, you're going to want to, yeah, it it takes a lot. So not only are you becoming a professional, but you're also considering a private practice, which is a business. Yeah. Yeah. So out of the like frying pan out of the pot into the frying pan sort of <laughs> sort of idea yeah anyway so <laughs> that's just like me rambling on about oh what am I going to do when I graduate you know um but yeah I'm already kind of in the process so I teach like social paint classes and things like that but like it's called gentle painting I do it that's with amazing. like um yeah it's 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 exactly what I want to do but it's like I do that with um seniors okay. I have a seniors group Aww. in Welland and then I also have a few contracts coming up with different service organizations and that's really how I've been delivering whether I was employed by one or whether I went out and got my own contracts mm-hmm. so uh, that's just something that I do now I really really enjoy it and people get a lot out of it that's all you can ask for right yeah but things will change because every time I learn something, I'm like, every time I take another course, I'm going to be taking um, one on drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, <laughs> what's gonna? Ha- how's this going to change? I'm going to start giving people gummies and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come to that class. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, we'll do it in the woods. <laughs> but yeah, like there's all these different things. And then like psychedelics are, there's a lot of research around mm-hmm. that and um, talk of legalizing that for practice yeah my friend's actually going to an ayahuasca retreat so yeah 
that's yeah, scary to me. Lot. It is very scary, and I mean, it's it's somewhat regulated. Yeah. So somewhat. Where is she somewhat. going? In Toronto. Oh yeah, yeah I heard about local, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know that, like, if you're on SSRIs. So, like, antidepressants and stuff, you cannot take ayahuasca. It can be very dangerous. So mm. they regulate it in that sense, so it makes it a little bit more safe. But I would certainly be scared. But she, she's done it, and she, she says that she's had some eye-opening experiences. Well, yeah, everybody that does it, well, not everybody, but mo- the majority says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that's coming down the line, too, for the future. I think we'll see it in mm-hmm. our professional lifetimes I think so yeah and I think it's gonna be trendy as well probably yes. yeah <laughs> um but yeah so um yeah so what kind of uh hobbies do you have above and beyond school <laughs> and work well as you know school takes up a lot of it so um I do aerial arts so Ooh, in Lyra it's the hoop yeah, yeah. Um, I started taking classes and I fell in love, so I ordered a hoop and I hung it in a tree in my backyard. I've been doing that ever since. Um, what else do I do? I wish I could say I do more, but I don't. Do you ever have like an audience for that or is it just for you? It's mostly just for me. Um, but I have had a couple friends that have like wanted to try it, so I've shown them a couple things and and we've done it for fun, but um, I was taking classes for it. Um, but I think that there's something peaceful about just doing it by myself in my backyard. And you know, you don't know if you're doing anything right or wrong. You're just kind of free flowing it and doing what oh. feels right. It's almost like painting or something. Yeah. You know, you're just you're, you're just in going the you're in the the, the, the um the zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fun. It's it's hard. A lot of core workout. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's something I've done now for oh, probably about five years. Wow. Yeah. That's a really cool hobby. Mm-hmm. I like the sounds of that. It sounds <laughs> so peaceful. I bet you it's really peaceful to watch too. Yeah, I have a couple of videos that I've I've taken and I watch it back and I'm like, oh, that looks. Oh, you didn't post them. I didn't post them. <laughs> <laughs> I should though. I really should. Yeah. Um. I think that people would be interested in something like that for sure, mm-hmm. just to watch you. Um, I remember when pole dancing became like a yeah. thing or whatever, <laughs> and at first I'm like, oh, that sounds like, like what? <laughs> and then my friend started posting, and I was like, holy crap, like the acrobatics involved in it and the thigh muscles and the abs, and I was just like, okay, you go. Yeah. Those girls are athletes for sure. Yeah. Take some serious strength. So, working with like some of the clients that I've I've encountered in my jobs, um, we've utilized painting as an outlet. There was, um, I wish I could remember what it's called. Maybe you might know. It's a form of painting where you draw like a random squiggle all over your page, and then you connect the corners. There's a name for this yeah, form of art. It's neurographic. That's the one. Yeah. We did a session on that, me and one of the other girls that I work closely with to do either like live little like pops of this is what art, like this is what art therapy kind of like techniques are to clarify it for the community. But we did a longer version of it 
and it's on YouTube or it's on my website, but it's really informative. She did a really good job explaining everything about it and guiding people through it. But we also had a artist, a local artist, who's been doing it without realizing she's been doing it. Wow. And her art is amazing. And we had her come in and it was an emotional breakdown of her art. <laughs> like we put a few pieces up and were, was like, okay, what were you thinking? Because this is what we see. And she, was, she, she really did open up quite a bit. And uh, the session's really, really good. So check it out. Yeah, but I, I looked into it for one of my clients who loved art, and, you know, I thought that it would be a good way for her to express herself, and so we did it together, and it was super fun. It's good for expressing yourself, but it's also good for rewriting, like, a narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's cool. So you're, you're applying things, so that's interesting. Yeah. You have to in this field, right? Mm-hmm. You learn so much, and everyone kind of responds to the best way to form like a plan for a client Mm -hmm. right a treatment plan like you know well I don't know I can't really speak for everybody it's hard eh like you can't be like well I don't want to disrespect what anybody else does um and all of that too or like but like in my opinion I just think like figure out what like become really knowledgeable in a lot of different um treatment options and then create a plan that suits them personally individually each time and no treatment plan ever looks the same in all the ones I've done I have never had the same thing work for a different person yeah everybody's so unique Mm -hmm. all right well um I wanted just one more question here um when I asked you if your life were a novel what would the title be you said what not giving up looks like so, do you want to just elaborate on why you chose that title? Certainly. Um, I have almost given up more times than I can count throughout life. Um, and had I have given in to what I was feeling in those moments, I would not be here today and I would not be able to you know, be in a position to help are so far from who you were absolutely yeah that's amazing well thank you for sharing that with me I think that we do have a lot like um even from like when I was a teenager in high school um we are able to talk about mental health a lot more openly now and I think um suicide awareness as well uh we're able to open up more and more about that as well so um, what I'll do at the end of this, or perhaps even in the beginning of this podcast, is I will give the suicide pre- prevention hotline and some information about um, if you suspect human trafficking or if you have been where to find some support and maybe even some information about homelessness uh, because we did talk about quite a bit today. And um, it, I think it's important to keep the discussion going too. So if you ever want to come back and um, have a story to tell or um, just want to update me on how it's going. Like we've graduated and you figured it out. Um, come back and let me know. And uh, I'd be delighted to have you back on. Yes, it's been so great. Thank you so much. Thank you.